Today's scripture reading is from 1 John 5, verses 6 through 8. This is he who came by water and blood, Jesus Christ. Not by the water only, but by the water and the blood. And the Spirit is the one who testifies because the Spirit is the truth. For there are three that testify, the Spirit and the water and the blood, and these three agree. Well, good morning. My name is Zach Lee, one of the pastors here at the Parkway Church. Hope that you are doing well. If you've got a Bible, we're going to be in 1 John chapter 5, starting in verse 6. 1 John 5, starting in verse 6. Those services are temporarily canceled until we get through this uh, pandemic. Christianity is not canceled, so the show must go on. So while you're turning there uh, in your Bible, I want to start with a little story. So when I was in high school, uh, I played basketball, and I had a buddy named Justin, and we would often hang out together and these kind of things. And one day, we were traveling to a basketball tournament, and we were on just a regular school bus because we're not the Dallas Mavericks. We don't get to travel in luxury or in style. And I'm sitting in one seat and I look over in the middle of the ride as we're driving to this basketball tournament and he is just staring at me with both eyes, just staring straight at me, okay? He's not blinking, he's not moving. And I start to think, what's wrong with this guy? Is he trying to pick a fight? Is he trying to be me? Is there something on me or is there something around me that he's looking at? And I just can't figure out why he keeps staring at me. And then I think, maybe he's dead. Because as we're going over bumps, he's just staring and then his head bobs, but his eyes still stay open. So he looked like he might have died. So I don't know what's going on. He just keeps staring at me. And as we go to get off the bus, I say, hey, man, why were you staring at me the entire ride? And he goes, I wasn't staring at you. And I said, what do you mean you weren't staring at me? I was looking at you and you were looking right back at me the entire bus ride. And he said, well, I can't, I couldn't have been staring at you because I was asleep. And then he said, oh, I know what happened. You need to know that sometimes I sleep with my eyes open. Isn't that crazy? If you ever meet somebody who sleeps with their eyes open, I'm pretty sure they can only be killed with a silver bullet. And so uh, this is information that was helpful that he had that I didn't have. Well, in the same way, in the book of 1 John, what John has been doing is showing the difference between real and false Christianity. And today what he's going to say is that the way we know that true Christianity follows the teaching of the apostles, follows the gospel that John is giving, is because he, like my buddy, has a testimony. He has some information that, that others don't have, and this is how he will prove his points of what is true and false Christianity. Who's actually asleep versus who's asleep with just their eyes open. So let me open us in a word of prayer, and then we will hop into the text. Almighty God, we thank you that you're good and that you're loving and that you care for us. We thank you that you are uh, even better than we think that you are, that you are beyond our comprehension. Would you help us? Would you protect us? Would you guide us? As we work through this text, I pray that it would encourage us all. It's in Christ's name that I pray. Amen. Well, if you've got your Bible, we're going to be in 1 John 5, starting in verse 6. We're going to start with 6a, which just means the first part of verse 6. It says this. It's really weird. This is he who came by water and blood, Jesus Christ, not by the water only, but by the water and the blood. Now, what on earth does that mean? Anybody have that crocheted on a pillow in your home, that verse? Or like a Christian t-shirt that says he came by water and the blood and not by water only, and you just like wear it to the gym? It's a very strange passage. Sometimes when you're reading in the Bible, you think to yourself, this passage is really clear. Why do we even need pastors? What a fake profession. And then you get to this text and you say, please help. And so that's what we're going to try to do today is unpack uh, this very strange and very difficult text. Before I do, I want you to see something because there's a lot of different interpretations here. Notice in 6a, 
that the issue of whatever it means for Jesus to come of water, which we'll talk about in a second, is something that John and his opponents agree with. Where they disagree is whatever this element of blood means. Look, it says, this is he who came by water and blood, Jesus Christ, not by the water only. John and his opponents agree with whatever that means, but by the water and the blood. So what's gonna be unique is what the meaning of blood. So let's go over just a bunch of different interpretations when it comes to this text. Sometimes what some will say when it comes to water is that that's a reference to Jesus's baptism, okay? That's a reference to the beginning of Jesus's public ministry. Notice that Jesus's public ministry doesn't begin until his baptism. Others will say that the reference to water is about baptism, but not about Jesus's personal baptism, but about the fact that he baptized others as he went and taught the gospel. Now, specifically, it was his disciples, the Bible will tell us, that were doing most of the baptizing, but that's what water could be a reference to. Others will say that water is a reference to the fact that Jesus was born, right? That the Virgin Mary uh, gave birth, and then this idea of water is kind of the idea of amniotic fluid, right? A, A woman's water breaks or whatever it might be. That's kind of the idea. The problem with that view, though, is that that's not how Jews talked about birth. They didn't talk about it as being born of water. The same thing is true in John 3 when it talks about being born of water. That's not a reference to natural birth or amniotic fluid. That's more of a modern scientific understanding. That's not what Jews thought about on this issue. What others would say is, well, the reason it mentions water and blood is because there were people thousands of years ago that thought that those were the two main components that made up humanity, right? You have to drink water or you die. You're like 75% water. And if you cut yourself, blood comes out. So there was this idea that maybe what, uh, what John is doing is he's saying Jesus is truly human. Now, he does believe Jesus is truly human. Elsewhere, he said that if you deny that Christ has come in the flesh, that that is not correct teaching, okay? But that doesn't seem to be the primary emphasis here because notice also that the opponents agree with the water. So if they're just talking about his humanity, why would, agree, why would they agree with one and not the other one? Well, another way to take this text is the way that St. Augustine takes it, which is to say, this is actually a reference to the ordinances, to the sacraments, to baptism, and to communion. Whereas the false teachers have neglected the church, the false teachers have gone away from John, they don't have the water, baptism, or the body and blood, like in communion, which is something that uh, is part of your relationship with the true Christ. Although I think Augustine is probably somewhat right sacramentally, I don't think that that's the main emphasis here uh, in this text here in 1 John. Others, like John Calvin, would say that water and blood is a hendiades. What is a hendiades? We've used that phrase here at Parkway. A hendiades is where you use two words to refer to one concept. Literally, the word hendiaduos means one by means of two. Okay? So if you say, I stayed home despite the rain and weather, rain and weather are referring to the same thing. So what Calvin will say is that both blood and water are actually referring to Jesus' death, right? To Jesus' death. When Jesus is stabbed in the side with a spear, what comes out in addition to blood? Water. The problem with that, though, again, is that the opponents agree with the water element. So if it's talking about his death, why are they just agreeing with one and not the other? Some think that what John is doing is he's refuting a heresy known as Serinthianism. Oh, what is Serinthianism? There's a good theological term for you. Serinthianism was this idea that the Son of God descended upon the man Jesus at his baptism, water, but he left the man Jesus before the crucifixion, okay? And if that's the case, what John is doing is saying, no, 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 no. You have to understand the Son of God 
has always existed, and he takes on humanity. He does not take on a second person, the man Jesus, whatever that means. He takes on humanity, and at the incarnation, Christ then is from that point forward always one person who is truly divine and truly human. That's the orthodox teaching. The problem, though, is that we don't have a lot of evidence that John is probably trying to refute this later heresy, Serinthianism. Okay? So the, the, the idea that this is nascent or proto-Serinthianism that he's trying to refute is probably not what's likely. So what does this text then mean? Why is it talking about water? Why is it talking about blood? Let me explain what I think it is and then we'll elaborate and unpack that. What John is doing in teaching the correct gospel, the correct view of Jesus, despite his, the, the, the teachers that are false teachers that are his opponents, is he's saying, the Jesus I preach saves you through his life and ministry and his sacrificial death. So the baptism is, or the water is probably referring to Jesus' baptism and the fact that Jesus baptized as he preached the gospel and the fact that Jesus did all the things to earn our salvation. We're not just saved by his death, we're also saved by his life. He keeps the rules, he does the things that we should have done. So what John is probably saying is the Jesus I proclaim to you is one who began his public ministry at his baptism and it culminates in his death and resurrection. And what the false teachers are probably doing is simply denying that Jesus has died for their sins, okay? Now, before I unpack that, I need to say something that I think is important for verse 6a. You need to know that in John's gospel and in John's letters, that water is often used as a metaphor for the Holy Spirit, Okay? That water is used constantly as a metaphor for the Holy Spirit. Yes, Jesus comes, he's baptized, he does baptizing, but more importantly, he's the one that baptizes with the Holy Spirit. But let me give you a few examples of where the idea of water and the idea of the Spirit are mixed. Okay? In John 3, being born of water is a reference to the Spirit. In John 4, Jesus promises to give the woman at the well living water that wells up inside of her. Acts 1 says that Jesus baptizes with the Holy Spirit. John just baptized with water, but the one who's greater than John has come and he baptizes with the Spirit. Ezekiel 36, 25 through 27. I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you shall be clean from all your uncleanness, and from all your idols I will cleanse you. And I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. That doesn't mean a sinful heart, that means a soft heart. Flesh there means not stone. It doesn't mean like fleshly or lust, lustful. 27, and I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and to be careful to obey my rules. Notice the imagery of cleansing like with water and the Holy Spirit, okay? By the way, that passage has nothing to do with mode of baptism. It's not saying that despite the fact that everyone in the New Testament's dunked, this is actually how you should be doing it through sprinkling. The idea of sprinkling was the idea in the Old Testament of when God makes a covenant with his people where they sprinkle blood and or water on them. Interesting, another uh, blood water reference to, uh, to have this covenant and this cleansing idea. Titus 3.5, he saved us not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, okay? So here's what's going on in the first part of verse 6. John is writing this to refute his opponents, and here are two things that we know about his opponents, okay? First of all, they deny that Jesus died for their sins. They don't think that they need a Messiah. They don't think the Messiah has come. They deny that they need atonement. We've already seen John say that if you say that you don't need forgiveness, that you say that you have not sinned, you're a liar. But rather, if you confess your sins, that God is faithful, 
to, to forgive you of your sins and to cleanse you of all unrighteousness. So we already know that John's opponents are denying atonement. They're denying that they need forgiveness. They're denying their own sin. And so one of the things that John is trying to do is to say, listen, you can't just follow a Jesus who lives this good ministry post-baptism. You have to follow the Jesus who has died for our sins. There's a sense in which what John is doing is he's refuting what is called theological liberalism. Theological liberalism is where you downplay all the good stuff in Christianity. The good stuff in Christianity is the Trinity and the incarnation and the resurrection and atonement and all the things that are central to our faith. In theological liberalism though, Jesus hasn't come as God's son to save you. He's come to simply be an example, to be a moral example so that you know how you should act. You should be kind to people and you should feed the poor and you should do these kind of things like Jesus did. And what it does is it neuters the gospel, okay? So what John is saying is, no, 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 no. Jesus has to die for your sins. You're a sinner. You need atonement. The other thing that we're gonna see that John does in just a second is he's gonna refute his opponents on a second account. What the opponents are probably doing is they're saying that they're following the Holy Spirit even though they're not. They're saying they're following the Holy Spirit even though they're being led away from the Bible, from the apostles, from the apostolic, which simply means apostles, teaching, okay? Anytime in church history when people think that they're following the Spirit and they start to drift away from the Bible, they start to drift away from what the church has traditionally held, they always end up into something super weird. The, the first heretical group that we know that did a bunch of speaking in tongues, that did a bunch of ecstatic speech, was uh, called Montanism. It was led by a guy named Montanus, and Montanus was a heretic. His followers actually thought that he was the Holy Spirit, okay? They used the formula in the name of the Father and of the Son and Montanus. That's what they did, Okay? because they were not realizing that the Spirit has spoken in His Word. If you want to know what the Spirit says, read the Bible. That's the Spirit's words, okay? The same thing happened during uh, the Middle Ages. When Pope Urban II in 1095 gave his famous speech at Claremont calling for the First Crusade, one of the things that he said is that the Spirit was leading all the people because they all cried out, Deus volt, God wills it at the same time. And it led to the Crusades. Or, during the Reformation, there was this group of false teachers called the Zwickau prophets that thought that they were following the Spirit, and so they instituted polygamy and fell into heresy, and the German government had to come and kill them all to stomp that out, okay? So the Reformers would say, whoa, 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 we are very pro the Holy Spirit, but never detached from the Bible. The, the, the Reformers hated the Zwickau prophets, what they called the radicals, because those guys are not really spiritual, if you want to know what it looks like to follow the Holy Spirit, you don't get to move away from the apostles' teaching. You don't get to move away from the Bible. And so John is trying to refute several ideas that these false teachers have so that he can protect the Christians that he's writing to. So before we go on to the second half of verse six, here's what I want to say. What John is doing here, most simply, if that was confusing, that was a lot of information, is He's trying to say, never, never, never de-emphasize the importance of the atonement. Christianity is all about our sin and our guilt and how God has provided a substitute so that we might live through sacrifice, through uh, the cross, through Jesus' blood atoning for our sins. Never move away from the atonement. And there are so many movements that try to distract from the atonement. The social justice gospel moves the focus away from the atonement. It moves the focus away from God and man being reconciled and just makes it about man and man being reconciled, okay? Greek orthodoxy, 
who uh, would say that we are sinners and would agree with atonement, they don't put much of a focus on it. The focus is not that you're guilty and all this legal language. They don't like a lot of that legal language, but rather their focus is on what is called theosis, that what we're trying to do in our Christian walk is to get our soul caught up into the energies of God so that we can have this closeness with God. Legalism distracts from atonement because the focus is not on Christ and what he's done for you. It's on how you can try to do better. The charismatic movement moves the focus away from the atonement. It focuses on gifts. The prosperity gospel moves the focus away from atonement. It focuses on health and wealth and all these things despite the fact that Jesus says it's hard for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. The whole self-help, Joel Osteen, live your best life now nonsense movement distracts from the atonement. It makes it about you and not about Christ. The cult of niceness, as I call it, which is this weird thing that's going on in evangelicalism right now, where the most Christian thing to do is to not ever stir the pot, to not ever bring up controversial things, to not ever call out someone in sin, to just be nice, that distracts from atonement. The Bible is not nice because the Bible is not primarily about us. God is nice, God is great, but we in our sin are not great, okay? We in our sin are not great. So here's what I'm saying. If the gospel is the kingdom of God, The castle that sits in the middle of that kingdom is the person and work of Christ, okay? Let's look at the second part of verse six. 6b says this, and the spirit is the one who testifies because the spirit is the truth. What John's gonna do now is he's not only appealing to the life and death of Jesus, he's appealing to the testimony of the Holy Spirit because the Holy Spirit cannot lie. The Holy Spirit is God and it is impossible for God to lie. The Holy Spirit is not like us. Sometimes we mix a little truth with a little lie, right? So I'll give you an example. I worked for a job one time and a guy turned in an application. I won't tell you what it's for because I don't want uh, this to be shaming to this person. But uh, he filled out an application and his name was Juan Flores, okay? I think that's okay to say. That's a pretty common Spanish name. I doubt that Juan is watching the, uh, uh, the sermon today. But uh, his name is Juan Flores and uh, he was denied on this particular application, Okay? A few weeks later, we got another application from the same address, and the name of the guy that sent it in was Johnny Flowers. And so I said, this is kind of a weird name, and why is he at the same address? And then my uh, coworker who spoke Spanish said, wait a second, John in Spanish is Juan, and Flowers in Spanish is Flores. This is literally the same guy who's trying to trick us by anglicizing his name in some weird way, okay? His address is right, but now he's tried to deceive us. He's mixed in this weird name. The Holy Spirit's not like that. God doesn't ever mix a little bit of bad in with his word. His word is perfect. So a few things you need to see here about the second half of verse six. First, the Spirit testifies to who Jesus is. That is part of the job of the Holy Spirit, add extra, is to testify who Jesus is. John 15, 26. But when the helper, that's the spirit, comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, the spirit of truth, who proceeds from the Father, he will bear witness about me. Acts 5, 32. And we are witnesses to these things, and so is the Holy Spirit, whom God has given to those who obey him. John 16, 13. When the spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all the truth. For he will not speak of his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak, and he will declare to you the things that are to come. Notice that's what the Holy Spirit does. He testifies to who Jesus is. When you became a Christian and you finally believed in Jesus, that's only because the Holy Spirit had regenerated you before you had faith. That's what the Spirit does. He testifies to who Christ is, okay? Notice also, though, the Spirit always testifies to who the correct Jesus is, the correct view of Christ. We are very pro the Holy Spirit. You have to be if you're a Christian. 
He is the third person of the Trinity. He is God, co-equal, co-eternal with the Father and the Son. You worship him, you can pray to him, he is God, okay? We're very pro the Holy Spirit. But what you need to know is that the Holy Spirit never leads you away from the Bible and never leads you away from the historic, orthodox understanding of who Jesus is. To say it easier, the Holy Spirit is pro-church history. The Holy Spirit wants you believing the gospel that has been, quote, once for all delivered to the saints. Not new versions of the gospel, not new versions of Jesus, but what the church for the last 2,000 years has held. New Testament scholar Karen Job says this about the Spirit in this passage. The Spirit is the truth, and any truth claim apart from the apostolic teaching cannot be of the Spirit of God. Therefore, the Spirit is the one who bears witness to an individual that the apostolic, meaning belonging to the apostles, teaching of the gospel is true and trustworthy. Okay? It's true and trustworthy. The Spirit is the one who is speaking. The Spirit is the one who is inspiring John. John is an apostle. He speaks by the authority, the power, and the testimony of the Holy Spirit. And notice this. Speaking of water and blood from earlier in verse 6, when does the Spirit show up to testify who Jesus is? You see that at his baptism and then after his death at Pentecost. It's fascinating. So at Jesus' baptism, Luke 3, 21 through 22 says, Now when all the people were baptized, and when Jesus also had been baptized and was praying, the heavens were opened and the Holy Spirit descended on him in bodily form like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, You are my beloved Son, with you I am well pleased. Notice the Trinity. There's only one God. There's not, these are not, this is not three gods happening here. There's only one God, yet somehow the Father says something to the Son. The Son is coming up out of the water. The Spirit is lighting on the Son. You see this Trinitarianness here in this passage. And notice that the Holy Spirit is authenticating who Jesus is. You see the same thing after the death of Jesus and his resurrection at Pentecost, when the Holy Spirit is poured forth on, uh, on the people. You see that going on here. So it's interesting to me that the Spirit testifies who Christ is, which Christ, the Christ who began his ministry at baptism and ended with the death, burial, resurrection, and his continual intercession for us. And yet, when the Spirit testifies to who Jesus is, he does so at his baptism and also after the cross, as well as several places in between, as well as several places in between. One more thing before we get on to verses uh, 7 and 8. Notice John's argument here. So imagine that you're a false teacher in the first century, And you go up to John and you say, John, how do you know that you have the correct gospel? And he says this, and the Spirit is the one who testifies because the Spirit is the truth. He simply says, I'm right because the Spirit agrees with me. Does that not sound a little bit like a circular argument? John, how do you know that your gospel's right? Well, because my gospel agrees with God. Well, how do you know your gospel agrees with God? Because God told me. Does that not sound like a tautology or like he's begging the question a little bit? You see, John is totally fine resting on the self-authenticating nature of Christianity, okay, of Christianity. Christianity is the starting point. It's something that we take for granted to begin with as being true. I can't take the Bible and say, I'll believe this Bible is true if it agrees with these science books, if it agrees with these history books, if it agrees with these whatever, because then I've made these things the ultimate standard and I've subordinated the Bible to those things. No, you see, the Bible is at the top. It's the highest standard. You cannot appeal beyond the Bible. If something's the highest standard, I can't critique it by something higher or else it wasn't the highest standard. Does that make sense? Or else it wasn't the highest? This is true in all claims to ultimate authority. I can't prove some mathematical proof without assuming math. I can't prove something in science without assuming certain scientific principles. I can't prove something logically 
without assuming the law of non-contradiction and these logical axioms. Every appeal to an ultimate authority cannot appeal beyond that authority or else it wouldn't be ultimate. And John is fine doing that with Christianity. If it's true that John is an apostle and the Spirit has inspired him, he can't appeal beyond that. His statement is true. A circular argument is only wrong if it's wrong. It can be right though. And that's exactly what John is doing. In the Reformation, the scriptures are sometimes called the norma normans non normata, okay? The norm of norms, which is not normed. What does that mean? That there are many standards, but the Bible is the highest standard, okay? It is the standard that critiques all the other standards and is itself critiqued by nothing. That's the way that John sees the gospel. That's the way that John sees Christianity. That's the way that John sees the Bible. Now let's look at verses seven through eight because they are fascinating. For there are three that testify, the spirit and the water and the blood, and these three agree. Now, if you are looking in your Bible and you are using the King James Version, what you just read was completely different than what I just said. Modern translations, NASB, ESV, NIV, whatever, have something similar to what I just read. But if you have something within the kind of King James tradition, it has something very different there. It doesn't just talk about the spirit, the water, and the blood. It says that there is also the Father, the Word, Jesus, and the Holy Ghost, and those three are one. You have this whole Trinitarian passage in the King James that you don't have in modern translations. And so what some people that are very pro-KJV only people will do is they'll say, see, modern Bible translations are bad because they got rid of the Trinity. (gasps) But it becomes an enormous overreaction, and I'll explain why. So the first time I ever drove a car, I might have told this story here before, but I love it, so I'll tell it again. First time I ever drove a car was not this magical experience like you might have had. Maybe you were sitting in the uh, parking lot with dad at Walmart or something, and you're learning how to drive. I had to drive because of an emergency. So I was in high school. I didn't have a learner's permit or a car or anything yet, but I had a buddy that was older than me, and he had a black F-150, okay? So there was this new girl that had moved into the neighborhood, this cute girl, and we figured out, you know what? Being the strapping young lads that we are, we're going to go and we're going to go say hi to her and see if she wants to hang out. So I get in his truck and we drive to this girl's house and I get out of the the, the truck like a normal person. And my buddy goes to get out of the truck and when he slams the door, it sounds like he closed his seatbelt or something in the door. And then he just starts screaming, okay, like at the top of his lungs. What he had done is he had closed his hand in the door so hard that the door didn't bounce back open, but it had actually shut and he had to open the door to get his hand out. So he comes around the corner with blood in his hand, and he falls down on his knees in her lawn and just starts screaming and cursing, okay? And I'm thinking to myself, you are the worst wingman ever. If she comes out of her house right now, you have blown any chance that you gave us by showing up, right? Can you pull yourself together, man? The last thing she needs to see is cursy, bleedy guy in her grass, okay? And he keeps saying, I can see the bone. I can see the bone. You got to drive me home. And I said, I don't know how to drive. And he said, you've got to. Well, being the first responder at heart that I am, I said, all right, I'm going to save your life. And so we got in the truck and I started it up and I had never driven before. So as soon as I hit the accelerator, we just take off because driving a real car is not like a go-kart or a video game. When it comes time to to hit the brakes, we just about hit our face on the dash because, again, the brakes in a real car is not like a go-kart or a video game. The accelerator's nice and smooth, but the brakes are like, you get a little, and then it just hits a wall, okay? 
And so we're doing this and I get to him to his house and I curb the truck and he gets out and he starts limping. Notice he didn't hurt his leg, but he starts dragging his leg behind him like a zombie as he's going to his house. And he goes inside his house and he says, mom, you can see the bone, dude. And I remember thinking, don't call your mom, dude. Even in a time of tragedy, don't call your mom, dude. So he went to the hospital and then he came back over to my house later that night because I wanted to make sure he was okay. And I said, hey man, are you, did you die? Are you okay? And he goes, no, uh, I was actually fine. It wasn't the bone, it was just some fatty tissue. I way overreacted. In the same way, that's what a lot of people do with this section of 1 John. They say, why does the King James have something that these modern translations don't have? (gasps) There must be some sort of scandal. And it becomes a big overreaction. So let me explain what's going on between the King James and modern translations and explain why modern translations are actually right when it comes to this, okay? So this is what is known as the Johannine comma or the comma Johannium, okay? What that means, comma just means sentence. This is the sentence in 1 John, John's sentence. And if you're reading a King James, here's what it says, okay? This is uh, verses seven through 8a in the King James Version. For there are three that bear record in heaven, the Father, the Word, and the Holy Ghost, and these three are one, and there are three that bear witness on earth, and then it mentions the spirit, water, and blood like we have in our text, okay? Where did that phrase come from? Let's do a little nerdy church history. Are you ready? Okay. Right at the time of the Reformation, Okay, right, right before that, really, there was this scholar, and he's not a reformer. Luther actually will end up writing th- things against him. But his name is Desiderius Erasmus of Rotterdam, which is a great name. That just sounds like a villain, okay? But he's a brilliant, brilliant, brilliant scholar. He's a humanities scholar. He's the top scholar in the world in Latin, and he's the top scholar in the world in Greek. So to be the very top scholar in those two separate fields means he is beyond brilliant. And what he does is he is the one that publishes a critical edition, an academic standard edition of the Greek New Testament. So when you go to translate the Bible into the vernacular, German or French or English or whatever, you have to use Hebrew, Aramaic, and Greek manuscripts, okay? So what what he's doing is he's creating a Greek New Testament that is going to be academic and the standard Greek New Testament, and he doesn't put this Trinitarian reference into the version that he publishes in 1516, and the reason he doesn't put it there is because it's not in any of his manuscripts. He writes in his annotation simply, in the Greek Codex, I find only this about the threefold testimony, because there are three witnesses, spirit, water, and blood, okay? Now, let me tell you why this caused a stir. So just to summarize, pretend you're Erasmus, you've created a Greek edition of the New Testament, but it doesn't have this phrase that occurs in the Catholic Bible at that time. The Latin Vulgate has this Father, Son, and Spirit phrase, but your Greek New Testament doesn't because it's not in Greek. Remember, the New Testament was not written in Latin, it was written in Greek. But because the Catholics have it in their Bible in the Vulgate, they get upset that Erasmus has not included it in his New Testament. So a bishop named Edward Lee, no relation, no relation, goes up to Erasmus and says, how dare you? You have to include this in your Greek New Testament. And Erasmus says, no, I don't. I don't have to include anything that's not actually in the Bible. And, but Erasmus concedes and he says, you know what? If you can find me, Edward Lee, if you can find me one manuscript that has that passage in Greek, I'll include it in my Greek New Testament. So what happens is Bishop Lee produces a corrupted manuscript that had been edited by a Franciscan friar named Freud in 1520. And what this friar had done is he had actually taken the Latin phrase and just written it in Greek. 
He'd taken the Latin phrase and just translated it back into Greek. So Lee brings Erasmus this document, right? It's got like smudge marks and coffee stains on it. And you can tell it's been doctored and says, here, I found a manuscript. Now you have to include it in your Greek New Testament. So Erasmus kind of rolls his eyes and is like, fine, and he includes it. Well, it's Erasmus's Greek New Testament that the translators of the King James Version of the Bible in 1611 are using. So if you're using a King James Version of the Bible, you have this extra phrase that is not actually in the Bible. Remember, the Bible is not just the thing you have in your hand in English. The Bible is what is ever originally composed in Hebrew, Aramaic, and Greek. Your English Bible is the Bible to the degree that it accurately captures the original Hebrew, Aramaic, and Greek. So modern translations have not taken a verse out of the Bible. The King James included a, uh, a section that was not ever actually in the Bible, okay? So let me say two things here. One, I'm not trying to dog on the King James. If you want to use the King James version of the Bible, it's fine. It's a fine version, uh, especially for its time. What it was able to do was incredible, okay? But modern Bible translations are better and are more accurate. Why do we use the ESV here at Parkway? Sometimes somebody will email us or they'll call us and they'll say, do you guys use the King James Version in your services? And we have to lovingly say, you're welcome to use one if you'd like, but the ESV is better. The modern translations are better. The, the King James in the New Testament is based on about eight manuscripts, most of them from the Middle Ages. Modern Bible translations are based on over 5,700 Greek manuscripts, not even to mention over 10,000 in Latin and over a million quotes from the church fathers, but they also are much older. Some of our manuscripts go back to the second, maybe even the first century, okay? So use what you want, but we have not taken anything out of the Bible. God's word is as it is originally composed, not what happens when some shady friar does some shadiness right, after the, right at the beginning of the time of the Reformation. Another thing to mention is this. This does not in any way get rid of the Trinity, okay? Our hope in the Trinity is not based on one obscure verse in 1 John. It's based on hundreds of verses that say that there's only one God. Somehow, there are, he's three persons, and somehow, each of those persons is truly and fully God at the same time. You, you remember when the early church is hammering out the doctrine of the Trinity, they don't have the Johannine comma. They're able to do it without that because the Trinity is all over the Bible. That's what you need to know. Now, that just tells us the history of verses 7 through 8. What does it actually mean? Let's read it again. For there are three that testify, the Spirit and the water and the blood, and these three agree. First of all, why does John say that there are three witnesses? Well, the answer is because John is Jewish. In the Old Testament, to establish a charge, you had to have two or three witnesses. Why? Because it's harder to get a group of people to lie than it is just to get one person to lie. You even see this in the New Testament. It says, do not admit a charge against an elder except on the basis of two or three witnesses. If you just come to us and say, I don't like this elder, they're bad, and you're one person, the Bible tells us not to listen to that. Or like when we're doing church discipline in Matthew 18, you go to somebody who's in unrepentant sin one-on-one, -on -one, and if they don't listen to you, what do you do? You take a few other people with you so that every charge might be established on the basis of two or three witnesses. John is being very Jewish here. He's saying, I am testifying with several different proofs that the gospel that I'm preaching is true, okay? Notice that the witnesses don't have to be personal. The spirit is personal, but water and blood are impersonal. Is that okay? Yes, the Bible does that all the time. John 10, 25, Jesus answered them, I told you and you do not believe the works that I do in my Father's name bear witness about me. Apparently works can bear witness. 
Romans 2.15, they show that the work of the law is written on their hearts, while their conscience also bears witness. Your conscience can bear witness. And their conflicting thoughts accuse or even excuse them. Romans 3.21, but now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. Okay? So here's what John is doing and what he's not doing. He's not saying this. It's not like this. It's not like I go to the grocery store and you say, Zach, how do you know that, how do I know that you went to the grocery store? And I say, these loaves of bread were witnesses. They heard me do it. That's not the point. Okay? What John is doing is he's saying, I am giving you two or three proofs. I am bringing forward not just the testimony of the Spirit or not just the fact that Jesus had an earthly ministry or not just the fact that Jesus died for our sins. I'm bringing all of those together and they're all agreeing. They are all saying the same thing. That's the idea. See see where it says that they all agree. Let me tell you why that's important. True Christianity will not be contradictory. In true Christianity, it will always emphasize the saving life, the death, the saving life of Jesus, the death of Jesus, and the power of the Holy Spirit. These three things are not at odds. They go together. That's the idea. These are not separate witnesses saying different things. They're all saying the same thing, which is this. John's gospel is right. John and the apostles are right, and the false teachers are wrong. A few more things to see, and then we will be done. Now, see the word testify there in verse 7, for there are three that testify. In Greek, there's something there that you can see that you cannot see in English. In Greek, that word testify is continual, okay? It's continual. That the water, the beginning of Jesus' ministry, the blood, his sacrificial death, and the Holy Spirit testify to who Jesus really is, testify to what the gospel is, not only for John, but for us today, specifically for John and for his audience. These things continue to be true. The gospel continues to be true. The Spirit continues to convict our hearts. We continue to go back to read John. Now, here's something interesting. When somebody rejects good doctrine, when they reject true Christianity, Sometimes they also have a tendency to end up rejecting the ordinances of the church. They end up rejecting baptism and communion and these kind of things. So let me give you a a quote from a guy named Ignatius of Antioch in commenting about the heretics of his day. He said, They abstain from Eucharist, that's communion, and prayer, because they allow not that the Eucharist is the flesh of our Savior Jesus Christ, which flesh suffered for our sins. Not only, so, so, so here's a good way to say it. In John's mind, he has the gospel that's testified by water, blood, and spirit. And he also has the church community, those that actually know John, that have not departed like the false teachers. And when they come together to do the sacraments, the ordinances, baptism and communion, they also do those in light of that gospel. When you have false teachers, they will often also become false when it comes to the sacraments. I'll give you a few examples. Oneness Pentecostalism is a group that denies the Trinity. They will only baptize in Jesus' name instead of in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, like Matthew says, because of their bad theology. So their bad doctrine leads them to bad sacrament. Mormons have a false view of God, false view of the gospel. They basically deny everything we hold sacred and reinterpret it in weird ways. And so guess what they also do? They don't really take communion. They don't take it with wine. They take it with water. You see, when you're off with the gospel, that'll affect other things and you'll end up belonging to a different community that doesn't practice what the reformers would say are the two marks of the church. The two marks of the church are the correct preaching of the word and the correct administration of the sacraments. So there is something in this text, though Augustine is, uh, I don't think his interpretation is primarily right. I do think that there is a hint here that when we are baptized or when we partake in communion, we are reminded of this testimony. 
we are reminded of the gospel as John presents it. Is it okay in a season where we have a pandemic not to partake of communion? Yes. Sabbath is made for man, not man for the Sabbath. Is it okay to partake in some communion if you want to, as long as you're doing it in a biblical way? That's also okay. God knows that we're in a pandemic, and he, is, uh, he knows that sometimes we have to get creative as we're trying to obey his commands so that we don't put people's lives at risk, okay? So I want to read something to you. So that we've given a lot of information here. Zach, you said something about a guy that stared at you while he was sleeping, and then your friend slammed his hand in the door, and supposedly there was somebody else named Lee that was shady that I shouldn't trust. What, what is going on in this lesson? Let me summarize everything that I've just said, okay? I'm going to do it by reading this passage again, but I'm going to read it in the New Living Translation, which is an okay translation. It's not the best for serious study, but I think it gets the meaning of this text absolutely right. So let me read it to you and summarize. 1 John 5, 6-8, the text we're going over. In the New Living Translation says this, And Jesus Christ was revealed as God's Son by his baptism in water and by shedding his blood on the cross. Great translation. Not by water only, but by water and blood. And the Spirit, who is truth, confirms it with his testimony. So we have these three witnesses, the Spirit, the water, and the blood, and all three agree. That's what this text is about. A difficult text where John is refuting false teachers where he's simply trying to say, the true Jesus, the Jesus that's testified by the Spirit, is the one who began his public ministry at his baptism, himself baptized and taught the gospel, and then died for our sins and was resurrected. That's his point. So, in ending, let me give you some pastoral thoughts. Which of these three elements do you have a tendency not to focus on? I'll give you an example. Maybe you're somebody who thinks that you're forgiven by God, but you think that you need to somehow add to Christ's righteousness. You think that somehow Christianity is about you doing better and trying harder and cleaning your life up. If you could just be holier, here's what you need to hear. Jesus came by water, which means he came to live the life that you should have lived, but have failed. Jesus gets baptized. Why? He doesn't need to be forgiven of his sins. He has no sins. Jesus gets baptized, not because Jesus needs to be baptized, but because you do. Jesus is identifying with humanity. He's identifying with John's kingdom of God movement, okay? And so even though Jesus has no sins, he is baptized to fulfill all righteousness. Does Jesus as a Jew offer sacrifices? Yes, why? He doesn't have any sins because we have sins. He must live righteously on our behalf even though he doesn't need forgiveness. He must do all the things that God has commanded us to do that we fail to do. So maybe you need to understand, Christ has earned all your righteousness. You cannot be better than Christ, okay? So your righteousness is given to you. You cannot improve upon it. Do you see yourself that way? Or are you somebody stuck in the chains of legalism? Well, maybe you're somebody who says, okay, Zach, I feel like I somewhat walk in holiness, but I just, I can't get past this thing that I've done in my past, and I just don't feel forgiven. Well, what you need to hear is Jesus is also the one who came by blood and that he was crucified for your sins. Listen to me. If you are a Christian and you have repented, you are forgiven, period. You are forgiven. A lot of Christians, we see ourselves as like Christians with like an asterisk by our name. And then down at the fine print, it says, yeah, God will save them because he has to, but uh, they're also really a scoundrel or something like that. Okay, you need to hear, if you're carrying around sins that you've already been forgiven of, stop. In the words of Martin Luther, it is the work not of God, but of the devil to bring up forgiven sins. Maybe you're somebody, and I think this is important, maybe you're somebody who doesn't see yourself as being in Christ, but you define yourself by sins that somebody has done to you. 
Not your sins, but sins that somebody has done to you. Maybe you've been sexually assaulted. Maybe you've been abused. Maybe you've been betrayed. Maybe somebody has really hurt you. Here's what you need to hear. Christ has come not just to forgive you of your sins, but also to forgive you of the sins that others have done to you. That your identity is not in your sin, nor in the ways that other people have wronged you. That's not your identity. Your identity is in Christ. You need to focus on his atonement. The fact that he's come of blood, as the text would say. Lastly, maybe you're somebody who needs to understand that following the Holy Spirit is not something that is usually extraordinary. It looks very ordinary, right? Some people think that what it means to be spirit-filled is to flop on the floor and have all this chaos and all this ridiculousness. To follow the Spirit looks very ordinary. It looks like Bible study and prayer and putting sin to death and confessing your sins and loving God and walking in peace and these kind of things. It looks very ordinary. Maybe what you need to hear is the Holy Spirit speaks to you in the scriptures. If you want to be a spirit-filled person, submit yourself to the Bible, study the Bible, read the Bible, love the Bible. That's what it looks like to be spirit-filled. Maybe you need to focus on that element here. Whatever you need to do as I pray, would you take a moment in your heart? Or actually, I'm gonna do this. Let me just give you a second right there as you're listening to this or whatever it might be to give you a second to think through this. Where are you not trusting Christ's life to save you? Where are you not trusting Christ cleansing to cleanse you? Where are you not submitting yourself to the Holy Spirit and letting him control your life as you walk the way the scriptures would command you to do? Let me just give you a second and then we'll pray. Almighty God, we thank you for this time. We just pray that you would bless it. Would you keep us from the enemy? Would you keep us from our sin? Would you protect us? I thank you for our church. I love these people. I pray that you'd be with them in a season that's stressful. We confess that you're still sovereign, that like all these things before, this will blow over and you're still king. Would you help us? It's in Christ's name that we pray, amen.